Good morning. We're glad that you are here, particularly if you are in the front row. Glad that you got thrilled. I'm sure that's where you picked. Hey, my name is Mike. Welcome to our community. Okay? Okay? Let me try that again. My name is Mike. Okay, no. All right. Uh, So a couple of things. Uh, First of all, if you are new, you picked a great day uh, to come because um, we're going to be sharing a little bit about who we are and what we're about. Uh, Our church is governed by a group of people called Elders. And last weekend, we were away. By the way, shout out to Albert Tate. How great was that brother from another mother? Yep, that's all he gets. I'm sick of hearing about how great it was. Um, It's like you folks have never heard preaching before. You know, I just, I was hurtful. Um, So, so uh, we were away last weekend and uh, many of you uh, signed up to pray for us, which was totally humbling. Thank you for that. And uh, for the last 18 months, um, since I've, I've been here, the elders uh, and I've been working on a couple of big things. Uh, first thing, and these aren't like totally enthralling things, but they're the nuts and bolts of churches. First thing was church governance, how, how the authority of the church is held and carried and what are the lines of responsibility. And uh, what, what we have done is we've uh, invited everybody to a couple of congregational meetings we're having tonight and tomorrow night, uh, in this room tonight, in the commons tomorrow night. Uh, our elders are proposing some changes to how uh, we do some things, and so we want to invite you to be a part of that. Uh, but the second thing we've been working on uh, has been kind of what are we going to be about, where are we going, what does success look like um, from, a, from a biblical perspective, and what are the values that are going to drive our decisions. And so I wanted to share, this is not going to feel like a normal sermon kind of uh, morning. Instead, I want to share with you a bit of of some of the places that we've gone, some of the journey that we've been on. And let me tell you why this matters. If you're here and you've been here for a long time, one of the natural questions is, okay, well, where are we going? What, what's guiding the ship? Uh, and if you're brand new, please understand that um, Americans have a very low view of what it is that happens in a place like this. And part of it's the church's fault. We've turned church into a building. We've turned church into a program. But there is a a deep biblical theology of what it means when God's people gather. And we want to share a little bit about how it is that we make decisions and what are the the pieces of biblical theology that guide our decisions. And so this isn't the most fascinating stuff, but it's incredibly, incredibly important. So whether you've been here forever or this is your first or second time, uh, I'm going to invite you to dive into PowerPoint with me. Now, I'm going to start our little presentation by referencing a book that we've been reading at the elder level. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. And it's a book written by an award-winning journalist who's now an EV-free pastor. And his argument is basically, there are some things happening in the church and without the church that unless they're dealt with, will lead to kind of a recession of Christianity in the same way we saw a financial recession back in the day. So I want to share some of what he says. Now, Standard disclaimers apply. Statistics can be made to tell any story. And, uh, and, and I'm not interested in fear-mongering or any of those sorts of things. There's enough of that going on. But what we've been doing is we read this book and we asked ourselves the question, let's say, just for the sake of argument, that he's right. And that the stuff I'm going to share with you is all true. How would that change the way we do church? That's the question we've been wrestling with. So fire up the PowerPoint. Oh, by the way, next... 
week, a, a guy by the name of Barry Corey is going to be teaching. He, um, he is smaller than Albert. He is wider than Albert. Uh, but he is just as dynamic and good looking. And Barry, are you going to wear a suit next week? No, please don't. Please don't. Because all it does is it makes me get emails saying, why don't you wear suits? So uh, go ahead and fire up the PowerPoint. Now, um, here are the six trends this guy identifies. Number one, the church is much smaller than we thought. Number two, young adults are fleeing. Number three, there's going to be a significant decline in giving as older generations die off. Number four, uh, failure to focus on mission, hostility from outside and division from within. I just want to go over five minutes some of what he argues. And again, I'm not interested in saying, hey, this is true. I'm interested in saying, if it, for the sake of argument, if we thought it were true, how would that change the way we do church? So his argument is, listen, some of us have been told like, that evangelical Christians constitute 30% or 50% of the U.S. population, when in actuality it's less than 10%. Only 7% of the U.S. population, according to some folks, would qualify under the banner of evangelical Christian. If every, just to put that in perspective, if every Christian moved to New York State, there wouldn't be another one in the rest of the country. All right? This isn't a huge number. In fact, in international terms, there are only slightly more evangelicals in the entire United States than there are Muslims in the city of Cairo in Egypt. This isn't a large number. So there was this sense we were the moral majority. We were speaking for the whole of the country. Well, that's not quite true. We're also hemorrhaging young adults. Um, one of the, this is something that keeps me awake at night. Uh, and this isn't just one study. This is multiple, saying roughly the similar thing. About two in every three, two out of every three young adults that are raised in the church will depart the faith by the age of 30. Now, some of them come back. About one-third of those that leave come back. But his argument is they come back... The majority no longer do come back, but those that do often suffer from divorce and pretty significant damaging life decisions they've made apart from Christ. So it's not just that the church itself is smaller than we thought, but that it's shrinking. And one of the reasons it's shrinking is because evangelism and discipleship aren't priorities among most American Christians. And so we're not growing fast enough. In fact, you know, that blue line there, second down from the top, is kind of a, kind of a, telling indicator that as a percentage of population, uh, we're decreasing. And it's not just that we're decreasing in influence, but a surrounding culture is getting a bit more hostile. Would you agree with that? I mean, you don't need statistics, kind of, you can just fire up a news website to, to hear that. He, uh, he, points to a, um, he points to a study done a couple of years ago, um, asking 1,200 university professors if they had unfavorable feelings towards different faiths. 3% said they had unfavorable feelings towards Jews. 9% had favorable unfeelings to non-evangelical Christians. And when we use the word evangelical, we're meaning a specific kind of Christ follower, someone that emphasizes a personal decision for Jesus and Bible reading and evangelism. It's a subcategory of Christian. 22% held unfavorable feelings for Muslims, but 53% held, unfavorable, feel, 53 held fa- unfavorable feelings about folks like us. And, and, and again, this isn't news to anybody, right? I mean, the world has drastically changed. For those of you over 50 years of age, the world that your kids are growing up in is unbelievably and dramatically different from the world you did. And so... 
as all of this is happening, oh, oh, let me, before I get to that, um, a study was done a couple years ago, published in a book called Unchristian. Here are the perceptions, let's just say this is true, here are the perceptions of folks uh, 16 to 29 about Christians, just the monolithic category Christians. 91% feel that Christians are anti-homosexual. Christians are judgmental. I like that we have two number ones there. That's excellent counting. (laughs) You're welcome. I fact check all of this very carefully. Christians are anti-homosexual. This is my third time going through it and I just noticed. Christians are anti-homosexual, 91%. Christians are judgmental, 87%. Christians are hypocritical, 85%. And, And there is a sense that Christians are more known for their political viewpoints than for their love for each other and the world. I mean, I think we'd all kind of agree with that. Three-fifths said Christians are old-fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, and sensitive to others, boring. And after a PowerPoint like this, you know, we're really, we're really going after boring right now, you know, pretty significantly. Not accepting of other faiths and confusing. And so, uh, and 9% describe Christians as people they trust. Now, again, the, the point is it to fear monger, and the point is it to say the church is bad or whatever. It's just to say... There seems to be two gaps. There seems to be the gap that is the result of sin and death. That, that every person is in need of the good news about Jesus. But there's also a credibility gap, a trust gap, a perception gap. That when people think of the church or think of Christians, and then they think of Jesus, they think of two different things. High views of Jesus, low views of his people. Some of that's self-inflicted and some of that's happened for other reasons. But the point I simply want to make is that the world is changing dramatically around us. And Christians are divided over how best to respond. If you study first century Jewish history, the Jews were divided on how best to respond to the fact that the Romans were in charge of their country. Some said they needed to withdraw. Some said they needed to accommodate themselves. If you can't beat them, join them. Others would say, no, we just need to be more pure and holy. Others, others would say, let's take it back by force. There are such great parallels between those debates and the debates Christians are having today. Well, what do we do when America is no longer a Christian country? Do we take it back by force? Do we withdraw into Christian subcultures and just make Christianized versions of everything so we never have to interact with that big evil world? What do we do? So one of the things he identifies is that increasingly Christians are dividing over how best to respond. And he points to politics as an example that yes, the majority of evangelicals are still Republican, but not as significantly as before. And it's growing. This divide is growing. Next trend he identifies is that the oldest two generations of Christians give 70% of all the giving to all the churches in the United States of America. So as those folks go to be with Jesus, if younger generations don't see the need, the cost of discipleship, the whatever, they don't see the need to participate. What does it mean to now live on, 70%, on 30% of what you live on today? And again, I'm not saying he's right. I'm just saying, what if it were true? How would, how would you change the way you do this? Donations could decrease by much as 70% in the next 25 years if younger generations don't change. This is powerful. So that big 46%, that's, that is given by folks 65 and older. And it's not just that they're giving because they're old. They've always given that much. Do you understand that? 
So when they were in their 30s, they gave. And in their 40s, they gave. And now 65 plus, they gave 46%. And then another 22% for those 55 to 64. And so his point is just simply, well, what happens then in 20 years when those folks aren't around? In fact, he says the percentage of Americans who give it all continues to significantly decline and only 3% of Christians give 10% of their income to God's work. doesn't matter if it's a church or to charity or wherever. So he recommends churches have to do four things. Number one, they have to spend money on equipping people for evangelism and discipleship. you got to quit spending money on programs and buildings and you got to spend money on discipleship and evangelism. And buildings play a part in that. But if that's all you're doing, you're in trouble. Number two, you have to avoid debt and use the resources to prioritize evangelism and disciple making. Number three, for those people that are preparing to go be with Jesus, how do you help them leave eternal legacies? And then number four, how do you help the younger generation see that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be too. And that if you're not generous with a little bit of money, you will never be generous with a lot. So it's not like you wait until you have a steady income to learn to be generous because it just doesn't work that way. So our desire in reading this wasn't to, you know, sound the alarms and wasn't to, oh, we've got to change everything. But it was to simply say, we see some of this in our own community. We see the truth of some of this. And so what would it look like for us to begin to change and adapt to these new realities? So with that, I want to go over some stuff that we've crafted, again, not the most fascinating, but incredibly important. Are you with me? Okay. Hesitant. When's Albert coming back? So, our mission. Our church exists to develop, empower, and release kingdom people and kingdom communities. Notice I didn't say church people and church communities. Kingdom people are people formed by the priorities of Jesus. And kingdom communities are communities formed by the priorities of Jesus. We're not interested in replicating small E.V. Freeze everywhere, or small Mike Erie's everywhere, or small Jenny Keys everywhere. We're really interested in creating kingdom communities and kingdom people who are developed and empowered, and then put that slide up. What's the third word? And released into kingdom... Uh, whoops. Exist to develop, empower, and release kingdom people and kingdom communities, and then into, is where I was going, missional engagement in their spheres of influence. Now let me tell you what missional engagement means. All right, And we spent a lot of time talking about this. Missional engagement means three things. Number one, that you recognize that your obligation as a Jesus follower consists entirely of the following command. Give to other people what you have received. That's it. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus? If you received grace, give grace. If you received forgiveness, then forgive. If you've received encouragement, then encourage. If you've received comfort, then comfort. If you receive mercy, then be merciful. I mean, literally, love God, love neighbors, that is the summation. So whatever you've received, give it away. Now, where do you do that? See, missional engagement means that each and every one of you are missionaries wherever you find yourself. So when you go to school, or when you go to work, or when you're sitting at home, or you're in a senior living facility, or wherever you are, that's mission. We no longer agree that missionaries are people that go overseas. 
missionaries, some of our missionaries go overseas, but the rest of them are going to get in their car and go to work or to dinner or wherever today. Right? We don't just have some missionaries that go overseas. We have a, a bunch of missionaries, some of whom go overseas. See the difference? And so we believe fundamentally that the church has to recapture its missionary nature. That one of the things that's happened is we've spent too much time trying to perfect church services and not enough time investing in evangelism and discipleship. And so you see the trends and we just recognize, hey, we have to do something. What is that? Well, we believe we exist to release kingdom people and kingdom communities into mission. So that means we want to plant churches. We want to partner with churches. And we want to see, we want to have people who were raised up at our church and say, you know what? We want to go and help a church that's struggling. We want to go plant a church over here. We want to go form a community in our neighborhood. We want to bless all of that everywhere. We're not interested in expanding the name of Evie Free. We are interested in expanding the name of Jesus. Now, I skipped a whole bunch of slides. You're welcome. (laughs) Now, I want to go over some of the values that make our decisions. And again, again, I get it. I get it. I was hoping for, you know, Bible, and I was hoping for just a great talk. I get it. But this is so critical for us. This is how we make decisions. All right? In fulfilling our mission, we seek to be first, focused on the mission. We believe the church exists to participate in the mission of God in Christ by redemptively engaging, what's it say? All aspects of society. Does that include politics, business, academia, nursing, right? That's everything and everywhere. How does God reach lawyers? He takes some of his kids, gives them law degrees, and sends them into the profession. How does he reach the next generation? He takes some of his kids, he gives them kids of their own, and then says, nurture them in the faith, right? How does he reach business leaders? He takes some of his kids, he dresses them up as business leaders, and he unleashes them in the business world. See, we absolutely and fundamentally believe That the reason God doesn't zap you into heaven the minute you accept him is that there is work for you to do. I mean, Paul puts this so well in Ephesians. You've been saved by grace through faith and this not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God so that no one could boast. And normally we just end it right there. But Paul does it. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God himself planned for us to do. Men and women, we have to begin living not as if we're on vacation but as if we're actually on mission. There's actually warfare happening around us. We're actually engaged in a spiritual battle. It is no longer about self-fulfillment and just, hey, the narcissistic needs of my ego. We want to be a community that is ruthlessly focused on seeing the name of Jesus advance into the world. We want to be centered on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God which is a way of saying God's rule and authority manifest on earth, was and is the focus of the work and teaching of Jesus. Our purpose as his community is to participate with God in the advancement and extension of his kingdom. We seek to serve his movement, not our own agendas, projects, and organizations. We desire, and again, another typo, to bless and participate in the move of God. And what's it say? Wherever we find it. So, We're not interested in seeing the name of E.V. Free Fullerton. 
get recognized. There'll be things that we'll do that we'll never put our name to. We're not, and there are things that we do that we don't tell anybody about because we don't want Jesus to look at us and say, oh, well, there you have your reward. If you wanted public recognition, there you go. Right? But we're desperate to partner with other Jesus-loving churches, partner with other Jesus-loving nonprofits, partner with other things that God is doing. We believe he is so radically at work beyond our walls that we want to bless and participate in his work wherever we find it, no matter what label it has. We want to be rooted in worship and scripture. The Bible is the most important authority for life and faith. Hey, everybody's got a high view of the Bible. Almost nobody actually reads it which I find so amazing. So we believe that the Bible is to be read and studied for formation, not just information. The Bible is not a textbook. It's not a systematic theology book. It is meant to form and shape you into the story of God so that you become one of the participants in that story. Right? The, the invitation isn't for you to memorize it, although that is huge. And it's not just to study it, although that is huge. But it's to live it and have it form you. We seek, hold on, you're amen in PowerPoint, hold on. We seek to be culturally relevant in our teaching and faithful to our inspired text. So we want to address things that are really going on, but do that in a way that honors the intention of the inspired authors. We recognize the centrality of worship in all we do, both in corporate and individual expressions. And we respect, and we respect the great diversity of worship forms present in God's kingdom. So, our 8 o'clock service, full orchestra, full choir. Is that legit? You bet. Does that have a place? Absolutely. Rock band, drums, guitars. Is that legit? Yes. Does that have a place? Absolutely. The only form of worship we don't respect is country. So, we will not ever, ever... And if that's a deal breaker, young lady, don't tisk me. That is a deal breaker. She was giving me that. Next. Now, our desire, no matter where you go to church, okay, if you can't find it here, find it somewhere. There are many great churches in Orange County is that you be connected way beyond what this is. This, this is an event. This is a teaching and worship event. This isn't the best expression of church. The best expression of church isn't one guy talking while all, everybody else is watching. Best expressions of church are things like, we call them adult fellowships, or small groups, or serve groups, or support groups, or men's groups, or women's groups, or college groups, or high school groups. I mean, you got to find smaller communities. So we felt like this is a huge value to us. We believe the church to be a spiritual family where all are welcomed and loved. Say that. All are welcomed are loved. If you are somebody who's struggling with your sexual identity, you are welcome. If you're somebody that is struggling through a porn addiction, you are welcome. If you're somebody who's greedy, you're welcome. If you're somebody who's gossipy, you are welcome. If your marriage is on the rocks, you are welcome. If you're lonely, you're welcome. If you're hurting, you're welcome. If you're bruised and you're broken and you've been hurt by church before, you're welcome. If you don't believe in God, you're welcome. If you believe in a different God, you're welcome. There is no place in the Bible that says you've got to agree with somebody before you love them. And so we desperately want to be a community where people are welcomed. We speak the truth in love, of course, but that's for all of us. We don't differentiate at that. But I just feel so passionate 
We believe that transformation happens best when people meet and are honest and vulnerable with each other, speaking the truth to each other in love. We believe the best expressions of community are those that are not homogenous, that integrate people from all ethnicities, generations, and socioeconomic statuses. We believe the church is a picture of the new humanity where all of the ways of dividing us outside of Christ are rendered obsolete in him. In other words, it doesn't matter what you're called out there. Here, your sons and daughters, your brothers and sisters. I mean, and to actually have a community that would begin to live that way would be something our world is dying to see. We want to be filled with grace and love. We believe in the power of God's grace to transform lives. And we reject attempts to legislate the Christian life through rules. We respect differences of theology and practice in non-essentials and secondary matters. So there are people here that believe all the spiritual gifts are operating today. And we have people who believe they aren't all operating today. Is that an essential issue? I don't believe it is. We have people here that believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour creation. The earth is 6,000 years old or 4,000, depending on how you're counting. And we have people here who believe in a very old earth and that those 24-hour days were long periods of time. Both welcome, of course. That's a non-essential thing. We, believe, we have some people that believe you've got to dunk somebody three times and others that believe you've got to dunk somebody once. Okay, we'll all have opinions on that stuff, but we'll just respect differences. There are battles we'll fight, for sure. Jesus is God. God is triune. The Bible is the inspired word. I mean, there are battles, of course. But we don't want to be a boundary-focused organization. We don't want to spend all of our time saying, well, to be a part of us, you've got to believe, all, you got to believe the rapture is going to be here. You've got to believe the, the things. I mean, you just, it's just exhausting. And I just don't see Jesus doing it that way. So we're going to have a great deal of grace and love with each other as we work it out. There are people that disagree with me all the time. The goal, as I say, isn't for you to agree with me. The goal is for you to be provoked. And as Paul says in Romans, to be fully convinced in your own mind. We seek to deal with issues redemptively and allow people to be in what? Oh, come on. Allow people to be in process. So if you are a finished product... Don't be here. Because you'll, you'll make the rest of us feel bad. We recognize that love is the highest Christian value. And we seek to embody love of God, love of neighbor, and then the hardest one. And the one least practiced by the church. Love of enemy. We want to be responsive to the Holy Spirit. Now, I grew up in a church where the Trinity was God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy, Holy Bible. Excuse me. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible was kind of our Trinity. And we skipped all of those passages where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. And the reason we did that is because we saw so much abuse out there. We don't want to be either people that focus on the excess or live in reaction to it. So we believe in the gifts, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation of God's people. We believe that God is the initiator of worship and mission. We believe the calling of God's people is to participate with him. In other words, God isn't waiting around for us to do something. He's already at work, and we're responding to him. We seek to avoid both a theology of excess and a theology of reaction. But that's just a way of saying, listen, 
There are folks in, uh, in the Christian community that so elevate the gifts and the supernatural manifestations of the Spirit, they neglect other things. But similarly, because of those folks, a lot of us go to the opposite extreme and we never talk about the Holy Spirit at all. We want to be Trinitarian and we want to be biblical. So we seek the Holy Spirit's filling and empowering without dictating how that should occur. Just a couple of more, gang. You're hanging in there great. I know, I know. I wasn't... I was excited to go through this with you, but I knew it would feel like, really? (laughs) Values. We believe that each person has a unique contribution to make to God's kingdom. Now listen, the best expressions of church are not when one person does it or when a paid staff do it. We just totally reject that. We believe the role of the church is to inspire and teach and equip people for the ministry that God set before you. We oppose anything that places limits on the priesthood of all believers. And we therefore resist the professional volunteer or clergy laity distinction. I mean, people will talk about lay people. I don't even know what that means. For me... And this is the best language I can come up with. We have, if you're a follower of Jesus and you call this place home, we have staff. We have paid staff and we have unpaid staff. And that's all we got. Right? This, as we say sometimes, this is a staff meeting. In other words, the best work of the church isn't what we do here. It's what we do there as the church. And this becomes the place where we're mended, we're inspired, we're equipped to go live the life God's calling us to. We want to be strategic and supernatural. The church is an organization with budgets and governance stuff like we're looking at. It's got staff and authority and hierarchy and all of that. But it's also an organism. Therefore, we seek to be practical and wise while at the same time expecting and praying that God would move, speak, and lead us in surprising ways. We believe in prayer meetings and in planning meetings. So if somebody asks me, what's our 10-year plan? Don't have the foggiest idea. I want to be ready so that whenever the cloud moves, we can follow. But to be ready, there's all kinds of planning and strategizing and things that you do. So this process was prayerful and it was strategic. So we want to be spiritual and spirit-led while at the same time being diligent and strategic. We stand against, so this is another one, countercultural and culturally engaged. We stand against both cultural withdrawal and cultural accommodation. We desire to be discerningly and selectively engaged in culture without being formed by it. So we want to be the place where you take the world's sets of values and flip them upside down, and that's what the church looks like. So the world values strength, will value weakness. World values boasting in accomplishment, will value humility. World values greed and accumulation and hoarding, will value generosity and simplicity. Right? The world values the objectification of women, will value their dignity and their value. Right? The world doesn't value marriage, we'll value marriage. I mean, take whatever the world thinks is awesome, flip it upside down, and you get a picture of what Jesus intended for his church. That's why we have a disabilities ministry. Right? That's why, absolutely, that's why bald people are welcome. <laughs> right? We seek to be a prophetic alternative to the ideals and ways of the world. And I cannot emphasize this one enough. This one burns to the core of me. We're to be the way it's done differently. 
If the world categorizes and judges, we're to be the place where all of those identities are left behind. We're to be the place where we shake our fist at the gospel of Donald Trump, right? (laughs) And simply say there's a better way to be free. See, there is a subversive nature to what it is that we do. Next. And last one. We want to be sensitive to the needs of the poor and the marginalized. We believe we best embody the heart of God to the world by serving the poor and marginalized. We believe the wealthy need the poor as much as the poor need the wealthy. And this will come out in the book of Luke pretty dramatically. We seek to be known for our political views. We seek to be known for our compassion. As we work against the systemic and individual injustices of our world by showing love in practical, tangible ways. We believe the church is to seek the public good and promote human flourishing in every sphere of human society. Now, what does this mean for you? Let me skip forward a little bit. Everyone said amen. (laughs) Our cue comes from Matthew chapter 4. Follow me, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of people. The old translation is fishers of men, but in Greek it's people, it's men and women. Follow me is the call of Jesus to be a disciple, to be a worshiper, where all of life is brought under his authority. I will make you is the invitation for him to transform us. Right? There's a part of the Christian life we can't kind of urge out of ourselves. We can't just, through self-discipline and effort, create the fruit of the Spirit. And the goal then of followers of Jesus is to be transformed into Christ-likeness and then become fishers of people. This is what it looks like graphically. Each and every one of you lives in a culture. That culture is your apartment. It's your dorm. It is your house. It is your workplace. It is a classroom. The invitation is that you would become not a believer in Jesus, but a follower of Jesus. And here's the difference. I once heard a guy named Francis Chan, who, who just a great, great teacher. He, had, he used this example. He said, you guys remember the game Simon Says? Right? Simon Says, pat your head. Let's go. <laughs> Simon Says, pat your belly. For some, that's easier than others. <laughs> Stop patting your belly. Oh, and then you lost, right? Because Simon, Simon didn't say it. The goal of Simon Says is really easy. You just do what Simon says. But when it comes to Jesus Says, we play a different game. When it comes to Jesus Says, we want to memorize it first. We want to form little groups. So when Jesus says, go make disciples, well, we want to memorize that verse. When Jesus says, go forgive your enemies, well, yeah, yeah let's, have a, let's pull a study together and talk about what it would look like for us to love our enemies. Right? When, when, when Jesus says, bless those who persecute you, well, let's make sure we know that in the Greek. When Jesus says, it's not as direct as when Simon says, right? I mean, I have a 10-year-old little boy named Nate. Nate won against all ridiculous odds an award at his school for orderliness. <laughs> I could not attend the award ceremony without having first taken a picture of his room (laughs) and saying, this award is not true of Nate. So imagine if I said to Nate, hey Nate, go clean your room. And Nate came back half an hour later and said, dad, I memorized what you said. (laughs) 
or, or dad, I got a small group of, of other boys together and we're going to study what it would be like if I cleaned my room. <laughs> right? I mean, you'd say, okay. <laughs> but the goal of the command was that you actually cleaned your room. Now, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that scripture memory and scriptural study and knowing Greek, those are bad things. I love those things. I do those things with my whole life. But I just want to notice the difference between Simon Says and Jesus Says, where the goal of the Christian life isn't that you pray a prayer when you're 10 and have nothing to do with Jesus the rest of your life. The goal is that you follow Him in your work, in your relationships, with your money, with every part of your life. And yes, under grace. We do this imperfectly. There's no condemnation. And yes, by the power of Spirit. Yes, yes, yes. But there remains just the simple intention that you and I should have to simply say, okay, bless my enemies. I'm going to need help with that one, Jesus. But I'm going to try. I mean, we've just kind of We've just kind of decorated obedience to the point where it doesn't resemble go and do likewise. And so our goal for each and every one of you and for me is that we become followers. Put the slide back up if you would. And as you follow, He will make us. There's a part that we can't conjure up. The goal is as you follow, you look more and more like him. And what's he look like? What's Jesus like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, bless you, gentleness, <laughs> right? I mean, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, that's just the personality of Jesus. That's, that's his personality profile. If he took a personality test, he'd be off the charts on love and joy and peace and patience and all that. So, Are you more loving than you were two years ago? Are you more joyful? Do you have more peace? See, as you follow, you put yourself in a situation to be molded and shaped by His Word and His Spirit. And so we're not interested in folks that fill seats that aren't interested in becoming more and more like Him. See, put the slide up. That's the bullseye. It's not having a big church that's the bullseye. It's not having a big budget that's the bullseye. This is the bullseye. When you get kingdom people like this and kingdom communities like this, then all of those trends won't matter. This is what the world's waiting for. And we have glimpses of it. We just have to stop living like we're on vacation and begin living like we're in the middle of a war zone. Because that's what it turns out to be. And then lastly, what does Jesus do with people who follow Him and are transformed into His likeness? He leads them straight into the arms of a messy world. He will make you fishers of people. You cannot follow Him and think that's optional because that's where He will lead you. You'll find yourself attuned to the brokenness and the hurt, the rebellion and the cynicism the despair and the anger of a world that is groaning. And if you are unmoved by that groaning, perhaps you haven't followed Jesus quite closely enough. This to me is incredibly convicting because it calls into question all of my supposed 
followership. Some of my followership is just thinly disguised. Jesus, be my Swiss army knife. That's exactly what Albert was talking about, right? Exactly what it is. Jesus, it's, I'm in trouble, so I need you. Oh, it's okay? I'm good. So men and women, again, I know going through PowerPoint isn't like the best thing ever. But there's a sense in which we so deeply wanted you to know the things that shape what we dream and pray for the community. Hopefully there's not a lot that's new. We've been preaching and, and studying Luke and, and other texts that I think represent some of what's written here. But that's what you're getting yourself into if you say yes or continue to say yes. So stand up if you would. I just want to pray that these things would be true over us as we continue to worship together. Close your eyes, please. We believe Jesus does his best work in the dark, and so we're going to have our eyes closed. Just teasing. Father, we want to bless and honor you this morning. We want to be people of whom it could be said. They know Jesus. And that Jesus is there among them. And Lord, these are just words on slides. We desire, though, to embody those words. And so we pray for a great movement of your Holy Spirit. And that each and every one of my brothers and sisters would with great joy follow. And with great joy be transformed. And with great joy recognize the great mission that sits all around them. Lord, our prayer is that your name would be made known and that you would be pleased to draw people to yourself. And so we say yes to you again this morning and again and again and again. Yes, Lord Jesus, come. Yes, Father, come. Yes, Holy Spirit, come.